This Advent season, as we've talked about hoping and waiting, we've turned to a text that the church has traditionally turned to during the season, and it may not be the text that you thought you would be studying during the month of December, but, you know, we aim to surprise. Um, we've looked at a book that is uh, intense. Sometimes it it's, has kind of violent or difficult energies that you have to work through as you read this book. Uh, a book that sometimes has been interpreted in ways that have been really troubling or even hurtful for people. Uh, but it's not a book that we want to get rid of because it has some important things to say to us today about waiting and hoping and the ways that those are revolutionary postures for the here and now. For anybody who in this Christmas season is thinking about what it means to long for the world uh, that Christ has promised. The book, of course, is Revelation. So uh, we're going to press a little further into this book, excuse me, but I want to remind you a little bit about where we've been. We, uh, we began a couple of weeks ago uh, and simply observed that this book is trying to do something for people who need to know that the way things are is not the way they will always be. For anyone who experiences this world as dark or difficult or unjust or corrupt, for anyone who discovers in your own life or in the world around us and the reality that we've created in the year 2018, for anyone who discovers that the way things are is not okay, this is a word that says the way things are is not the way they will always be. We looked at um, the call to active resistance and patient endurance because if you recognize that the way things are is not the way they will be, that the way things are is not the way God wants them to be, then perhaps it's on us to find the strength to actively resist and to patiently endure the way things are for the here and now. And we asked, from where do you find the strength to actively resist or patiently endure? When you're worn out and beaten down and defeated, from where do you find that strength? And we looked at that peculiar feature last week in Revelation where there's the big middle of the book, chapters 4 through 18, that talk about the way things are right now, where evil is named and confronted. And then at the end of the book, you have the way things will be. But strangely, in the big middle, there's actually two different versions of the way things are. Because in the middle of all the conflict and violence and all of the corruption that's being exposed, at the same time, you have these little interruptions with another picture of the way things are. And that picture looks a lot like the way things will be. These are these little interruptions that show God reigning even now. These little pictures that show that hidden wholeness in God, which has never been threatened by all that we have done to break the world and break ourselves. These little interruptions that remind us even now there are two pictures of reality that are both true. There's a hidden wholeness in God that's never been threatened, and there's a world that is breaking every day. And we're here to draw strength from that wholeness which has never been threatened in God, to resist all the things that are broken that don't look the way that God wants them to look. I've tried to summarize this uh, by saying this. If you're threatened by the way things are, because if, if the way things are is not working for you, if the way things are in your life, for example, is not working out for you, or if the world that we have created is not working for you right now, or perhaps if this world is hostile to your faith or your commitment to the kingdom of God right now, if this world is costing you something right now because of that commitment, if this world um, is less hospitable to you than it is to a person who looks like me because of the injustices that we continue to tolerate in the here and now, if you're threatened by the way things are, don't worry, God is going to deal with this. That's the first movement of this big idea. But then, if you're tempted by the way things are, if you're tempted to invest in the status quo of corruption and injustice, even in your own life, if you're tempted to just resign yourself, to throw your hands up and basically say, I guess this is just the way things are. If you're tempted by the way things are, watch yourself. Because this story is going somewhere, and you don't want to forget that. Now today I want to talk a little bit more about the way things will be. 
that, that final picture that we get from the book of Revelation, especially in those last few chapters. I want to observe it for a few reasons. First of all, because it's really important the way human beings are wired. Have you noticed this? We tend to align ourselves with the future that we're anticipating, whether we try to or not. There's just this natural movement in a human life that if there's a future that you're looking forward to, we tend to align ourselves with that future. Like the, the thing on the calendar in the future, the picture of the future that we're hoping for, it works its way back into our day today. Like the obvious example from my life has been recurring for 10 years now, and it's this irresponsible thing I do every year called Lollapalooza. If you've been here for more than a week, you know that all my metaphors are music or food. Deal with that. Um, but, but so here's the thing about my friends and I going to Lollapalooza. We don't just go every August to this concert festival in the heart of Chicago because the festival itself is great, even though it is. I, I know for me, one of the reasons I actively choose Lollapalooza is because of what it does to the entire year leading up to it. So Lollapalooza every year, they use that weekend to announce next year's dates. So you have exactly a year to look forward to when it's going to happen and put it on your calendar and ask for vacation time and plan where you're going to stay. And we use the entire year. So like the day after Lollapalooza is done, we start talking to each other, my little crew of buddies who does this every year. Who do we think is going to be on the roster next year? What kind of bands are going to show up? We start reading discussion boards online where people are speculating and rumors are being circulated about what bands are going to actually show up at Lollapalooza. We, uh, we do this really um, nerdy thing, which is you can actually scour the bands that you think might show up at Lollapalooza and look at their upcoming tour dates. And if there's a conspicuous gap on their calendar in August, a year from now, we start whispering to each other, maybe it's going to be them. And then we go further because it's a known fact in the Lollapalooza universe that Lollapalooza has a contractual stipulation where if you're a band and you play within like 100 miles of Chicago within like six months of Lala, you can't play Lala. So we look at their entire tour schedule to see if they've ruled themselves out. This all occurs like in the year leading up to Lollapalooza. I take it upon myself to research the newest, hottest restaurants and bars in Chicago because, again, the food thing. And if we're going to be in Chicago for a few nights, I want to make sure we have a good Chicago food experience. Then April comes, and they actually release the names of the bands that are going to be at Lollapalooza, which means we kick it into a high gear. We convene at my house for long dinners where we listen to the music. We create shared playlists so we can get to know the artists that we're going to see. And then we fight extensively over which bands are the best and who we will see. We'll gather around the table, we'll create wagers earlier on where we bet on who's going to be on the headline list before they release it. And then whoever wins the wager gets one trump card one time at Lala where they get to decide that they're going to make the entire group go see a band that the rest of us don't want to see. And then we get to Lala and we just ignore that. But we tell each other that that's going to happen. My point is that for an entire year, this thing that we're expecting right around the corner, it shapes our experience, our imaginations, our energies, our time, the way we spend our money, our focus. And Lollapalooza is kind of a cheeky example, but if you've ever had something that you're profoundly looking forward to, you know that that future anticipated reality translates its way back into the current moment that you are living in. Anybody who has a wedding date on the calendar has discovered that that future expectation, something around the corner, has translated its way back into the current moment and transformed your imagination, the way that you spend your time, your energy. Anybody that's had a due date on the calendar coming up has discovered that that due date has translated itself back into your current reality, and it has radically transformed your current reality because of that future thing that you expect. And frankly, anyone who has had a future reality that they hoped for, whether it's the wedding date or the due date or something else, anybody who's had that not pan out the way you hoped, you know what deep devastation comes. And that, that just reminds us, it just tells us that hoping and waiting are not flimsy, passive things that we just feel. They're radically important to what it means to be human in the here and now. 
And so what we are hoping for, like getting a picture of that matters, not just that we could pass a test on the book of Revelation, but because of what it will do to us if we keep this picture in front of us. And so I want to just um, pull from the text of Revelation a few snapshots of the way things will be in the imagination of John, the visionary who sees all these things. I want to see what they do to us today. Uh, So we're just going to do some snapshots. You guys up for it? Awesome. Here we go. Let's start in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. A side note, in the Jewish imagination, as is the case for a lot of ancient Near Eastern people, the sea is a symbol of violent chaos. And you find often in like ancient mythology and visions that dealing with the sea is a way of saying that chaos and violence and the unruly nature of the dark things in the world has finally been dealt with. So don't worry. I think we're still going to get beaches in the end, okay? Uh, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then in chapter 22 we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Let's start here. We've just heard of a new heaven and a new earth. We heard that everything is being made new. We read about a river of the water of life and a tree of life and a street in the city and a curse that's been removed. And I want to start here because all of this is like a callback to the original creation story. When we read about a tree of life and a river of life and a curse being removed, this is all a callback to the original creation story, which suggests that like in, in this imagination, in this vision, the future that we hope for, that we, that we long for God to bring about, is a deeply embodied, created, flesh and blood, taste it, touch it, smell it, see it, feel it world. This is significant because I don't know about you, but somewhere along the way, I thought I picked up the idea that the world that God promises, the ultimate reality that God intends, somewhere along the way, I picked up the impression that it was this future where God would get rid of all these problematic bodies and soil and trees and ecosystems, and we would enjoy like this, this like super disembodied spiritual life. And as I picked up that misunderstanding that doesn't have anything to do with the actual text, I discovered that, like a guilt inside me, and I was afraid that I needed to apologize for how much I liked life on planet Earth. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever uh, been on the playground where the kids are giggling? Have you ever been around a table with a shared meal with friends? Have you ever been using your body to work out or like your hands are in the soil gardening or the music is really good on the stage and you've got a glass of something in your hand at the bar and it's just moving you and you look around and you think this feels deeply, profoundly good and then this little guilt kicks in because you're afraid you're supposed to apologize for the affection that you have for an embodied life in an actual world. Because maybe somewhere along the way you thought the text was saying that all of that is a problem that gets rid of in the end. That's not actually in the imagination of the revelation that John receives. God doesn't say, I'm, behold, I'm getting rid of everything so that you can be liberated to be pure spirit. God says, I'm making everything new with a new heaven and a new earth. With a callback to original creation which suggests that the creator never gave up on it. He's just intent on healing it. 
Uh, Gene Peterson is a pastor, scholar, writer, and he writes a really fantastic commentary on the book of Revelation. He says this, The gospel does not begin with matter and then gradually get refined into spirit, as if that's the progression. The revelation of God does not begin with a material universe and a flesh and blood Jesus, and then, working itself up through the grades, finally graduate into ether and angels and ideas. The story that has creation for its first word has creation for its last word. Now, hopefully this is good news for everyone who finds that you have an affection for bodies and the stories that get lived in flesh and blood and soil and food and music and wondered why God would ever want to get rid of those things, maybe it's good news to find out I don't think that's the plan. The plan seems to be a renewal, a reassertion of the good of a created world, only in this case it's been healed and made new. This is important too because uh, if you watch closely, you might discover a correlation between teachers and people and communities who have come to believe that in the end, God wants to get rid of bodies and planets and soil and ecosystems. You might find a correlation who believe that in the end, God wants to get rid of all of that and a difficulty caring for and investing in those things in the here and now. If you believe bodies are a temporary inconvenience, you might have a hard time caring about bodies. If you believe ecosystems are a temporary inconvenience, you might have a hard time caring about these things. But if your vision of the future is one where they're healed and restored, that might make its way back into the present moment and the ways that we love one another and the ways that we tend to this flesh and blood world that we've inherited, that we have our hands on right now. First big picture from the text is a future that's flesh and blood. It's a world resurrected. It's a creation made new, not gotten rid of. Let's go a little further. Uh, Revelation 21, 24, 26. There's so many little surprises in this text. I could spend years just in these two chapters, these little hints and nods that you can miss. But watch this. Revelation 21, 24, 26. The nations will walk by the light of the city that we're reading about, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there, and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Uh, that's peculiar, the glory and the honor of the nations. Let's start there for a moment. Did you know that the glory that is a part of that enduring future is not just God's glory? You catch that? The glory of the nations of the earth will come into that place. Did you know that in the imagination of John, in the imagination of this vision, it's possible that there are things that you are a part of, things you are creating, things that you have your hands on, human cultural goods, that because they're so rooted in, in the image of God in us, because they are birthed out of our divine calling to create beautiful things, did you know that there is a glory and honor, a weightiness or an enduring substance to some of the things that we might create in the here and now that shows up in that future vision, that the glory of the new heaven and the new earth isn't a glory where you and I are diminished so that God could be made large, but rather a glory where the very largeness of God feeds into what he's created us to be, and the good and beautiful things that we've created get translated into that place. In fact, the biblical image of glory is weight or substance. Like if you're testing something in the marketplace and you want to find out if it's a fraud or a real, you weigh it. 
And the density or the weight of that object will tell you if it's real. The glory of something is the weight, the reality, the substance of something. And this text imagines that you and I could be a part of things, projects, creating beautiful goods that have such enduring goodness or realness or weight to them that they are actually part of the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. This makes sense to me, too, of why it is that the gates will never shut. Now, in an earlier imagination of my own, I might have suspected that this part of the story, the end of the story, is where things get the smallest, where things get the least generous, where we find out that maybe God was generous or open-minded for a season, but at the end, things get small and ungenerous and stingy or miserly. But here we have a city that is so generous that its gates never shut so that the good things of the glories of the nations of the earth can keep coming into that place. You have a a wide open, generous picture here. And it's not just that the gates will never shut. There's another little feature in chapter 21, verses three through four, that um, is so easy to miss that the translators even miss it. I'll show you what I mean. So this is Revelation 21, verses three and four. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Watch this phrase. I've made it bold and italic so we can pay attention to it. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, first of all, if your soul has ever sensed that you were made for a kind of harmony or union with God, and then some other cynical part of you or the world around you said, that's crazy, that's foolish, this text says, no, that, that deep place inside that longs to know union with God is not crazy, it's actually telling you the truth about yourself. And then God has this thing that they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now that phrase is not showing up for the first time in the scriptures in the book of Revelation. This phrase goes way back to some of the earliest ideas of the Jewish people in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. In this regard, there's a continuity between the ways that many, many earlier generations have imagined God in the future and then the the imagination of John here in Revelation. So there's a continuity. Let me start there. Let me go back to, for example, uh, Zechariah. This is one of the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. And this is uh, God speaking through the prophet Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Sound familiar with Revelation, right? Leviticus 26.12. Leviticus is way earlier. This is in the Torah, the books of Moses. This is just as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and they're given the law. This is that book that if you've tried to read it, can be really, really messy, right? Animals dying and sacrifices and, and what seem to be very strange laws or rules about the temple and all this stuff, right? But in Leviticus... We read God saying, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Sounds like Revelation, right? How about Ezekiel? This is a later prophet in the Old Testament. 37, God speaks and says, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So Revelation, or Revelation, Revelation has a lot of continuity with this, this ancient aspiration, this longing, this hope, this promise that God makes that we will be together, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Except there is an evolution in Revelation that the translation I just read you missed. Now, by the way, all the translators are smarter than me, but I read commentators who are smarter than the translators, so that's why I'm banking on this, okay? So a number of commentators have observed there is a tiny little nuance 
that expresses an even greater generosity or opening that's being named in that final picture in Revelation. Let me show you the way Revelation should be translated if the commentators are right. Let's go back to that. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. Watch. They will be his peoples. It's the first time in the text that this refrain, God will be your God and they will be your people. It's the first time people become peoples. It's the first time it becomes plural. In the English, it's one little letter, but it, it expands your imagination. It changes the sensibility. It says something is opening up here. Its gates will never shut. The glories of the nations of the earth will come into that place. And God says, I don't want a people. I want peoples. I don't want a diluted, homogenized, sameness community. I want peoples. In other words, if you want to set your sights on what this is going to be like, if you want to get a glimpse of the way things will be, you better stop looking at the way most of our churches, including this one, look on Sunday mornings and take your imagination to a place where peoples are colliding, cultures, languages, different ways of being human that in fact turn out to be radically in tune with God mediated through different cultures and societies. Don't picture your average church on a Sunday morning if you want to get this in your head. Picture an international airport where you hear different languages, where you see different kinds of dress. Picture if you've ever been in a large international city and you've been in the marketplace and you actually can sm smell and hear and taste the collision of peoples. And it's not that they've been homogenized. It's not the differences have been dialed down. In a sense, they're turned up and they enrich each other. If you want to get a picture of what this text imagines for the future, picture that. Sameness has very little to do with the world that God promises. Uh, but like a really beautiful, vibrant, invigorated diversity is actually part of that picture. Um, it's a generous city with the gates always open, where the glories of the nations of the earth are coming in. And God says, I don't want just a people. I don't want the peculiarity of the people I've created to be toned down. I don't want sameness. I want peoples. And uh, it's so peculiar that even some of the translators miss it, but it's part of the vision, part of the imagination of that future that we're here to get called into in the here and now. Now, um, we can talk about this generous picture of the future. The gates are never shutting. Uh, by the way, the city, uh, I'm not going to bother you with the math today, but it gives you dimensions on the holy city. And uh, I'm quite convinced these are not like literal dimensions. Again, this is... This is apocalyptic text. It's poetry. It's punk rock. It's trying to move you and do something to you. Uh, but long story short, the dimensions of the city are surely not meant to communicate the physical dimensions of a city because if you do the math on the dimensions and you imagine a person 2,000 years ago trying to imagine these things, it's absurdly, irrationally, incomprehensibly large. That's the point. It's a city beyond the imagination of an ancient person. It's a city more expansive than the imagination of an ancient person. It's bigger than you can imagine. The gates never shut, and the peoples keep coming into that place because God wants peoples. So you get this big, generous picture. But if I just tell you that, I'm not giving you the entire, the entire scene. And I don't want to fail at the entirety of the text in chapters 21 and 22 because we also read this. Nothing impure will ever enter that city nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing impure will enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. 
That's also a part of that future picture that we're being told to align our lives with in the here and now. Now, i got to be honest. Um, I read that, and I think, well, crap. <laughs> I'm out, and frankly, most of you are out. If people who do shameful or deceitful things are not a part of that future, uh, we have a problem on our hands. This is one of a number of places, even in the New Testament, where I read some things that are really uncomfortable for me, right? But I've been working with this, working on this for a moment. I mean, one thing that seems apparent, right? We said this already. There's the way things are, and there's the way things will be. And one of the things Revelation is trying to do in us is to compel us by saying, if you become too invested in the way things are, too invested in what is dark and difficult in the here and now, too invested in the injustices of the here and now. If you become a person who's invested in the corruption of the here and now, you may not feel very at home in the way things will be. Right? If your life, your energies, your imagination, your heart is invested in the way things are, in the dark way that things are, in the difficult way that things are, in the corrupt way that things are, in the unjust way that things are, if you're invested in that, you may not feel at home in the way things will be. I mean, frankly, the reason the gates of the city never shut is because there's nothing left to threaten the wholeness of that city because in this future, God has dealt entirely, definitively, completely with evil and injustice. That's the reason the gates don't have to close because there's no threat of evil coming in. There's no evil anymore. But if we've given our lives, our hearts, our energies, our imaginations over to the things that are evil or sinful or dark, we may not feel at home in that place anymore. This creates a problem for me, except that the book holds a tension that has within it space. This is good news, so hang with me for a moment. That's there in chapter 21. Nothing impure will enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. That's there. But there's another feature that's also there that it's easy to read over. Let me take you to chapter 21, verse 12. The city had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Let's keep that in front of us for a moment here. So you have a built thing, a city with walls, and there are names inscribed on this thing which has been built. Anybody ever been in a building where there's a dedication plaque, and on the dedication plaque it tells you who built the thing? You know, you read about... Uh, whoever was like the president of the company, the organization, and you read about the committee or whatever, and their names are there. Or maybe you've seen a cornerstone in an old historic building. Sometimes it might just have the date that the thing was built, or it might name the people who were part of building that space that you were entering into, right? Well, it's clear in Revelation that like the centerpiece, the, the primary builder of this reality is God, of course, but here in the city, just like the glories of the nations of the earth coming into that place, we also have the names of 24 people. The 12 tribes of Israel are the names of 12 actual people in the story. These are Joseph and his brothers. It's the family that eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And each of the 12 tribes gets its name from one of those brothers, right? Then you have the 12 apostles. These are these people who walked around and followed Jesus and then helped give birth to the church that, that God was igniting in the time after Jesus, right? So you've got Joseph and his brothers, and then you've got uh, the apostles, now, here's the interesting thing. Again, Eugene Peterson observes this. He says, these are some of the most flawed and faithless people you can find in the Bible. 
If you know a little bit of the Bible, you might know Joseph's brothers are the ones that conspire to kill him because they don't like him because they're jealous of the fact that he has their father's favor. And then when they decide mercifully to not kill him, they throw him down into a pit and then sell him into slavery in Egypt and then tell their father that he's been mauled to death by an animal. Those are the, those are the names that are inscribed here uh, on, the, on the gates. And then we have the foundations, which are the apostles. These are people like... These are people like Peter and James and John who get it wrong more often than they get it right, who want to bring the kingdom with violence, who run away from Jesus when things get hard, who keep screwing it up. And it's their names who aren't even just there but are inscribed in the foundations on the gates of the city. So you have uh, nothing shameful or impure or deceitful will enter that place. And you have the names of some of the most flawed and faithless people in the history of the scriptures a part of that place, which suggests... That it's not just that the way things are is not the way they will always be. It reminds us that the way we are doesn't have to be the way we will always be. When you read about a future where the investments that we have made in injustice or evil or corruption, when you read about a future where those investments will turn out bad, the good news is you are also reading about a future that is full of grace And that whispers to us not just that things will be different, but that we could be different. That we could become the kind of people who would feel at home in that future, which is good. Now, it strikes me that one of the ways we become those people is with the way that we hope and wait. That by keeping that future picture in front of us, we might discover our imaginations, our energies, our time, slowly aligning with that future. I've tried to kind of bring all this together in a bit of a summary. I've said this. The way things will be is an embodied future where creation is renewed, a holy city whose glory includes the diverse expressions of humanity and the union of that humanity with God. This future is somehow accomplished through both the judgment and elimination of evil and the inclusion of imperfect people. Let me say that one more time. The way things will be. An embodied future where creation is renewed, a holy city whose glory includes the diverse expressions of humanity and the union of that humanity with God. And this future is somehow accomplished through both the judgment and elimination of evil and the inclusion of imperfect people. And I know this Advent season, as we have named both the darkness and the light, I find myself saying, like, if, if that is what God is doing through this season and through the advent of Christ, my heart says, bring it on. <laughs> like, bring on that good future. And may we be the kinds of people who align our lives with it in the here and now. Now, um, throughout this advent season, we've wanted to offer some, some practices, some ways of waiting and hoping. So we've been giving generously and gathering here on Sundays and Tuesdays. Uh, but there's also um, a way of praying that we've been trying to share with one another through the season. And so we've encouraged you to take a candle home. You can take one home today if you want. There's candles on the tables there. And candles are just little aids for our praying, for our meditating, for our, our reflecting. Uh, a candle is a useful way to remind ourselves um, that what we hope for might feel a little bit fickle, a little bit frail right now. Like a candlelight that seems like it could be taken out by like the slightest wind. And yet we also know that it could set the world on fire. And we believe the light is growing even in the here and now, in our world and in our lives, even in spite of some of the evidence that we see. And so uh, I want to continue that practice in our gathering today. Uh, In a moment, uh, we'll turn to a fresh prayer for the week. But first, I want to remind you again of where we've been. 
We said uh, two weeks ago that one thing this text is meant to do for us is to remind us that the way things are is not the way they will always be. That there's a light that will break into the darkness and a future that we can hope for. And we've seen the light grow as we discover not only is it that the way things are is not the way they will be, but even now, that even now there's a hidden wholeness in God which has been revealed. This hidden wholeness has never been threatened by the darkness. It's never been threatened by injustice. It's never been defeated by anything evil. And even now we can be people who find the strength to actively resist and patiently endure as we anticipate the advent of Christ in our own lives this season. And to these two ideas, I want to add another prayer. Today, we'll actually turn uh, to a prayer that Jesus taught his friends to pray. And uh, what I'll do is I'll invite a moment of silent reflection. If prayer is not a word that works for you, that's okay, too. You could use this as a meditation. Um, But I'll invite a moment of silent reflection. We'll breathe deeply together. And then I'll invite you to stand to your feet, and we'll pray this prayer. We'll sing a little bit, and we'll turn to the text for one last word uh, as we put these ideas on our lips and hope to find them in our lives. So if you'd like to, uh, let me invite you now simply to uh, enter into a kind of silent presence. If you want to put your feet flat on the floor, that might help. If you want to breathe deeply, sometimes that helps me just be present here. And let's just take a moment uh, in the silence to think about not only that the way things are is not the way they will be, but that the way we are doesn't have to be the way we will be as we look forward to that good future that God promises. Take a moment in the silence to breathe and to be here. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? And today we'll make the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, our Advent prayer. And I'll encourage you to take this with you into the week ahead. And maybe to let a candle help you in those prayers. But today we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Yahweh, hear out your children crying out for peace. Father, pour out your spirit, prepare our hearts. I sit uh, with that vision of the future, the more strongly I feel two things. 
one is like, yes, please, like full of hope. And the other is um, a bit skeptical, frankly, because it seems like there's so much evidence to the contrary, right? And I almost wonder if it's knowing that. It, it, I wonder if the text anticipates that because the very, very, very end of Revelation, uh, Jesus speaks again as if to reinforce the idea that you're not crazy to keep hoping. Uh, we read this at the very end. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. That world is on its way. And so as I light our final candle, again, we'll make this our prayer as we pray. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Day spring, come in your wisdom. Save us from ourselves. Jesus, come in your wisdom. Come save.